0: Okay, let's just turn to well, page 11 on your notes. And I just want to say one more thing about Jacob and the, his encounter with God in Genesis 28. Just before lunch, we saw how God just came so graciously, didn't scold him about a thing. Did you notice that, didn't you? Blow him up with all the thousand and one things he could have found fault with. He just poured out his most gracious promises to him, and 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 showed him this ladder, which meant that from where he was flat on his back, there was a a way provided by God into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. And Jacob. It's coming at verse 17. And and, and Jacob was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he put at his head, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, which of course means the house of God, But the name of that city had been lost previously. Then Jacob made a vow. Now listen to this vow. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And that was great, but it wasn't to be compared with the way that that Abraham made his tithe. You see, this is where many, many people are. They, they are, They want to prove, if you like, the blessing of God and have the provision of God, and then they will pay back afterwards when God's already blessed them. And that's around the wrong way. In other words, it's like saying, well, Lord, if you give me a good job, and give me a nice house, and give me everything that I need, and look after me all the month, if there's anything left at the end of the month, then I will give you a tithe. But if you don't bless me, and look after me, and there's nothing left, then I'm afraid, you know, hard luck, God, will try and do, do better next month. Now, can you hear? That's where many, many Christians are. And and it, it's, it's fear, and it's certainly not a faith. And if you compare Jacob with Abraham, and the tithe. There's a tremendous difference between the two. Now that's where many people are. That's where they have to start. I remember years ago when I got back from India and came to England, and the first thing that God, God told me to do for I think it was between six and eight weeks was to speak on nothing but the tithe and the blessing. And I and I'm not one of these sort of financial prosperity people, but God said this is what they need because because they're all in all kinds of needs. They're all in k- kinds of problems, and until they get this right, I can't release the blessing that I want to release. And I went on, and at that time we had three meetings a week, I did the, the Saturday, uh, the, I'm sorry, I did the Wednesday, I did two times on Sunday, and every time I said, what do I preach? He said, just keep going, they haven't, they haven't got it yet. And after about, I think it was between six and eight weeks, finally, one of the elders came to me, in, to my house, in an absolute... And he said, you just keep going on about giving all the time. I just want to tell you this absolutely straight. I can't afford to tithe with the mortgages that I've got. And he said, you just make me feel uncomfortable every time I come to church. And this guy drove a rusty old car. Everything was in poverty. And everything was in need. And I, and I said, well, look, God isn't out to get you. He's out to bless you. And I said, what you mean to say is you can't, you can't afford that mortgage because you've got to put your tithe first. And I said, well, look, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, look, let me just, he was paid on a monthly basis. I said, look, on the first Sunday of the month, put the whole tithe into the offering and do that first. And then if you can't manage for the month, I said, come to me and I will make up your lack because I'd rather I gave the money to you than that you robbed God. And so anyway, because he was, he, was he was a Jacob, he was a man that had come out of a horrendous background, and he just could not bring himself to the kind of faith that Abraham had. And for, so, so I was stood there as a sort of backstop for the first two or three months. And he never came to me because he never needed money. And then certain things started to happen. He had a, a letter from the mortgage company which said to him, when you first apply for your mortgage, you applied for a 35-year mortgage for some reason that we can't explain. you were only granted a 25-year mortgage and you're perfectly eligible, so we can reduce our, your mortgage by so much a month. In addition, we've discovered that we've been overcharging you for the last eight and a half years, and here's a cheque for four and a half thousand British pounds to, to, to repay you for what you've accidentally overpaid. And then he got – this is absolutely a true story – then he got a raised to a new position in his company and for the first time in his life he bought a decent car and began to look like someone who the Lord loved. <laughs> 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 and the key was stepping out to do it, you know, before you had the proof that it worked. Hello. But that was a pretty timorous and fearful well. If you'll be if you'll uh, if, if you will bless me and provide for me and keep me in peace and meet all my needs and, and this and, that, and then you'll be my God. What a nice, I mean, as if he was doing God a favor. And then he says, and then, after all you've given me, everything, then I'll give you a tithe back. But you see, Jacob is on, I want you to see this because that's where many, many, many people are. Our, our churches are full of Jacob's and God wants to turn them into Israel's. He really doesn't. There could be some Jacob sitting here this this afternoon and hopefully you'll never ever talk that way or behave that way again. So he's on the road. He's on the process. Let's just move on. Then you go on into Genesis 29 and 31 where he's dealing with his... See, I think sometimes God cures craftiness by putting you in someone who's even more crafty than you are. So I I haven't time to go into it, but it's hilarious to watch these next two months where we find that uh, uh, Jacob and Laban are two crafty guys trying to outmaneuver each other, but God keeps stepping in to give Jacob the victory. I'm not time to go into that, but it's a fascinating study, which I decided I couldn't spend time on. But but Jacob ends out the other end of this, richly blessed. Now I want us to come on now to Genesis 32. And I want to deal with this in a little more detail. Jacob meets God. So in the end, Jacob parts company with Laban Laban and they go. And they've made a covenant, which I won't go into. And so verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. He called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim, I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce that correctly. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob, uh, I, I have dealt with Laban and, and I've dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have all this staff. And and he's and he's trying to make peace with Jacob, and he gets the news that the messages return saying we come we're coming, we came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are coming with him because Jacob is now going to go back to where he's supposed to go, and you know the story how he then starts to work out again because see what I want you to see is that this this. The street wiseness is what I would use it today. So you imagine someone that's been saved out of a, a New York gang and he's learned to live by his wits all his life. He doesn't automatically get rid of all that street wiseness. But what God's looking at all the time is the heart. Amen? And God's quite capable of taking these sort of guys and sorting them out. So now Esau's coming, the, if you like, the past is coming to catch up with him. He wants to make peace with Esau, but he doesn't know how to. And when he hears Esau's coming with 400 men, that means trouble. So he's working out a plan of how to deal with his situation. And he he, he thinks, well, if I just keep giving him you know, rich presents and gifts, that might that might placate him. But the order in which he sets out all his goods is interesting because Lee goes first and then Rachel. So it's like it's as if God is laying out the more and more precious things. But well, if he attacks and kills them, at least we'll get away. And, and, and the thing is, what can I most afford to lose? Well, Leah, um, she's not she's the, the bottom of the pile, so I let her go out in front with her kids and then we'll have Rachel and then, then there's, finally there's me. That's how some people live. They live a self-centered, it's nothing more than an expression of a self-centered life. And everything else goes, I want to come out of this alive. That's what he's basically saying. So he's not this sort of courageous conquering hero where he says, right, I'll go out in front and I'll take the brunt of this and I'll protect my wife and my kids. He's pushing them out in the front. And then he finally and finally they come to this verse so he sent them all over the brook and and he arose in the night took his two wives, his two female servants and, and, and he crossed over the fort at Jacob he took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had then Jacob was left alone so when there was nothing left but him now God can get at him And sometimes that's what God has to do with us. He's got to strip you of everything to get at you. But he's going to get at Jacob and he's going to deal with him. And we read that a man came, and I've got a capital M here because we know this is God because it tells us so later on, and wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he didn't prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, the day breaks. But he's, But now, you see, this is the strange thing, which many of us, if you've ever been through this sort of experience, you'll find that you begin with God coming to grips with you. And, and at first, you are afraid of this God, you keep your distance from this God, so the thought of coming near is terrifying once God breaks through to the place where he gets you, and you start to have this intimacy with God, then you suddenly realize you can't live without him. And that's probably where God needs to get with some of us, even in this meeting this afternoon. And you've got nothing, nothing left but God. There's nothing between you and him, and now he comes and closes in. And, and the God that, see, I was always, I mean, when I was saved, I didn't realize this at the time, but for seven years I was still scared of God. And the reason was because I was such a a lousy mess of of the way that I lived. And I couldn't comprehend and couldn't believe the utter unconditional love that God had for Alan Vincent. So when, yet I was desperate for God and yet I was scared of God. And I'm sure that many of you have been through that process, and I'm sure you've got many in your churches in that condition. And it's such an important principle to understand. So when I finally got baptized in the Holy Spirit, God came to me in my study. I mean, I was pastoring the Baptist church by then, and I was there, and God came to me. And and the night that I tried to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, when God tried to draw near to me, I ran away from him. I didn't move off my bed, but as I was lying on my bed, I shut up. And I wanted God so badly, and I was terrified of God coming. And when God came, it scared me to death. And I sort of closed up in, in apprehension. And, of course, God could not come to me. And I won't go into all the detail. It would take too long. But I had what I would call in many ways a Jacob experience because he just came and got me. And once he got me, and I realised how utterly wonderful and glorious he was, and he got hold of me and possessed me, then then the thought of him leaving me was so devastating. I can just understand how how Jacob went felt. You know, it started with God wrestling to get him, but it ends up with with Jacob wrestling not to lose God. You read a similar sort of story in the Song of Solomon when the Shunammite, you know the um, yeah, is it what's the name? sorry my memory's not doing too well this afternoon but 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 he, he comes in the night and, and and she is a bit diffident about getting up to let him in by the time she lets him in he's gone and she runs through the city trying to find her beloved you know one of the ways that god proves that that you need him is by withdrawing himself And if you've ever experienced his intimacy, if he's ever wrapped his love around you, and if you ever come to a day where suddenly you feel the desolation of being without God, which you've lived in most of your life, suddenly it's so agonizing that you do anything, which of course is part of the process. God wants to process us until we are totally and utterly God-dependent. Because that's the greatest freedom anybody can have. Amen. Amen. And it's a very, very important process which we need to go through. And it's, it's agony at times as we go through it. And God will do anything to get us there. But now, he, he won't let him go. And, he, and, and, and this is all part it. He says, let me go. The day's breaking. I've got to go. And he says, no, I won't let you go unless you bless me. See, This is the desperate longing for this, this God-hungry heart to be blessed. And then he says to him, What's your name? And what a strange time. But you see, his name epitomizes who he is. He said, I'm Jacob, the cheat, the heel. That's who I am. I'm just a bent up, twisted piece of humanity that's that's there's nothing straight or right with me. I can't deal with anybody else except with a bit of cunning. And I can't lose my streetwise ways. I've I've been. where I grew up, everybody cheated and and, and deceived and it's just become part of my my being and I can't get rid of any of that stuff I'm Jacob he says right, now you've admitted to who you are because it says this in 1 John chapter 1 it says if we come to the light and that's what many of us are scared to do because we don't think that God could tolerate what the light's going to reveal but if we walk in the light as He is in the light. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us for all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is, that word confess, as I'm sure you probably know, homologeo, it means to say the same thing. In other words, God wants me to agree with God about who I am. I'm a heel. But if we say the same thing as God about our sin, because that's what it's really saying, then then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God cannot deal with what we hide. He can only... And then it is a similar passage in Ephesians 5 where it says if we come to the light, the, light, the first work of light is to reveal the darkness. The second work, work of light is to, is to destroy everything that's not light. And the third work of light is to, is to create in place of the darkness something that's absolutely glorious. when God finished with that, he touched him in the hollow of the thigh, and, and that's a picture of that from now on, Jacob is never going to be able to stand on his own feet. He's never going to be able to live on his own. he simply now cannot live without God. He's got to, he's got to live by God and, and eat and drink God. And in other words, he's got to live the life that Jesus epitomized for us as he was a man on earth. He said, I live by the Father. Don't just believe in the Father. Don't just occasionally talk to the Father. He's my life. Paul said the same thing. Christ, who is my life. It was the same for Mary. When she came to the tomb and found that Jesus was gone, she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. I've got nothing to live for. And we've got to honestly face this question. What difference would it make to our life if Christ was taken out of our life? We might have to get a new job. It might change a, a few things here and there. But, but if, if we're... You say, for me, there's nothing left. And God says, right, now we've got that clear. Now I've made you a permanent, God-dependent cripple. And now that you... You know what you are except for the power of my grace. He said, now I'm going to give you a new name. It's Israel, a prince with God and with men. You're going to be the patriarch of my nation. Think of it. All the promises of Abraham and Isaac and all that I've ever purposed to do with the whole of the human race, I'm going to channel it through you. Isn't that incredible? And and God wasn't being mean. He wasn't trying to make this man look cheap or dirty. He was trying to get him to be real in order that he might emancipate him to the fullness of what grace-filled humanity looks like. And we read in the Scriptures that, that... that uh, Jacob limp, well actually we'll call him Israel now because he says you're not going to be called Israel anymore you're not going to be called Jacob anymore you're Israel and he limps away from that experience as the sun is rising and it's such a picture of the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings and you've got this picture of Jacob now but he's, he's limping on his, on his stuff he's never going to be that, that man who could live by his wits by his cunning, by his deceit because that guy's, that guy's dead There's going to be this new, God-dependent, helpless-without-God kind of person. Amen? Now, that's, that's how it was transferred. Okay. And, of course, he, he calls the name of the place Peniel. which means the face of God. Verse, I'm trying to find it. Verse 31. As he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day, the children of Israel never eat that particular muscle. You read if you come to to, uh, Hebrews in chapter 11, just to conclude this. Verse 21 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Jacob when he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff so he was still crippled even to his death amen are you prepared for God to cripple your self sufficiency so that you can truly live a God dependent life well, let's move on with our notes lessons to learn from Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha in the successful father-to-son relationship. So I picked out on Jacob as the the best Bible example of a God-hungry son. What does he look like? He looks like Jacob. This is the kind of person to whom God will pass the generational blessing. This is the kind of person that God's going to use and take him from the lowest to make him Just an absolute picture of his marvelous grace. Not the self-sufficient Esau and not even the cunning, wise Jacob. But he had to be transformed into Israel. And let's read on then. Moses to Joshua. Moses, most people don't even realize this, but Moses had two natural sons. Did you know that? And their names are Gershom and Eliezer, and they never appear eager to seek after God, and they end up as non-entities receiving neither blessing nor curse. They, weren't just, they just fade into insignificance. They weren't bad enough to be cursed, <laughs> and they weren't good enough to be blessed. They just, just, just were a non-entity. And I want to suggest to you the reason for this. You see, we've just seen in the case of Jacob how the passion of a prophetic mother has pushed Jacob into his inheritance and turned her mess of a son into a mighty prince with God. But now we see the other side of the coin, how an opposing mother can prevent her sons from coming into their inheritance. Because if you just look at this, you will find that, as I put down here, this fact that Gershom and Eliezer never came to anything could be due to the negative influence of Zipporah, their mother, who clearly did not like Moses' God. If you trace through the Scriptures, you will see she didn't like this God of blood, she didn't like this God uh, at all, and she wasn't. She didn't want to get anywhere near him, she wanted nothing whatever to do with him, and it would seem, this is only a suggestion, but I think it's substantiated by the Scriptures, it seems that she resisted their being circumcised, because they should have been circumcised on the eighth day, but they weren't. And I think it was mother opposition, I, you know, well, you bring that filthy knife there and cut my... Precious little boy and blood, you bar- bar- barbarous man. I want nothing whatever to do with that. And it's amazing how many people today, you know, are liberal theologians, how offended they are with the God of blood. Have you come across that yet? And, and, it, and, and there's something about um, and, and it seems like sort of compassion, but it's really a kind of perverted human sympathy, which stops them getting through to where they ought to be. Anyway, uh, I, there's, there's a mistake here, in your notes it should read Exodus 2, 21 and 22, it should read Exodus 4:25. it should read Exodus 18, it's just, I'm afraid I've forgotten that we moved from Genesis to Exodus, and that was a mistake of mine that we didn't pick up, but it should read Exodus. So in Exodus 2.21, we read about Gershom being born. Exodus 4.25, let's just look at that. Exodus 4.25. Well, let's go back a little way. Verse 20, then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt. Because Moses is on his way back to speak to Pharaoh and to become the the human instrument of God delivering their people from their captivity. And he's taken his wife and his two sons and he sets out on a donkey and he's returning to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you should say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your falseborn. Now see how God now views Israel. He's, he's become like the Lord's firstborn, and the purpose of Israel is now to bring the, the, the glory of this God to the whole world. But he's going to be the firstborn amongst many nations. Because he's got that privilege of the firstborn, he's also got the responsibility of the firstborn. I could now go off to a a nice track and talk for a little while about about the role of the Jews in the end-time move of God. It's going to be absolutely fantastic, but it's not something on their own. It's for them to bring blessing in a powerful way to the whole world. They eventually will get on track and accomplish the purpose which God promised Isaac. It will happen. Maybe I shouldn't have said that because I said too little and I haven't got time to say as much as I want to. But, but just— but can you see this incredible God of destiny, this God who works everything out of the counsel of his own will. And what are Islamic spirits compared with the purposes of God? But don't start hating Muslims because they're going to be brought in multitudes and tens of thousands and millions and millions of them are going to come in and they're going to join Israel, the firstborn, as part of the one family of God. Amen? It's all coming back together. And God's not going to be frustrated in any of these things. But he said, now look, if you don't let my firstborn go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And that's why God chose that particular sign to bring the release of his people. Does that make sense to you? Or have I said too little? Verse 24, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took, and it was over the issue of the fact that the two sons of Moses had not been circumcised. So now they were legally under the curse which is about to fall upon everybody. Can you see that? And it's very obvious that it's Zipporah who's in the way, and it's also obvious that that uh, uh, that um, uh, Moses wasn't strong enough to say, "I don't care what you think; we're going to do God's will." Because this thing went on, and then suddenly God makes an issue of this thing and stands to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said surely you are a husband of blood to me this foul, filthy but you know, this crude primitive religion of blood a man dying on a cross and his blood saving the world and oh, I tell you, I hate all this blood stuff why can't we be modern and intellectual? Amen? So God let him go. And she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So as a result, I personally believe that her very strong, and that's a, very, it's a warning to all of us, you know, if, if you, you know, you've got a wifely role to be a Rebecca to your kids, not a zipporah to your kids. And even more so, if your husband's not, as on fire for God as he should be. There's something wrong with Moses that he let him get, get away with it, but there's something very wrong with her that she wanted to do it. So God just steps in and does a bit of strong arm stuff, and she quickly gets into line. So instead of them, Joshua became the spiritual son who inherited from Moses. We're not told how Joshua came into this relationship with Moses, but we notice several things about him in his pursuit of God. Let's just look at these things now. You find Joshua, come to Exodus 33, where, where, where Moses had his own private tent. that He would go and meet God in, and the people at that time would watch all this at a distance because it wasn't that the tent was closed to them, it was you had to pay a price for intimacy. So the Lord, Exodus 33 verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he, he Moses, would return to the camp but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle or from the tent. This is not the tabernacle of Moses. This is Moses' private prayer tent, which he had, because at this point of time, the tabernacle of Moses has not yet been built. But Moses had this place where he would shut the door, shut everybody out, and have his time with God. And it used to be in the middle of the camp. But the trouble was this, that when God could come to meet with Moses in his tent, and all the glory of heaven came down, in the tents around Moses' tent, things were going on that shouldn't be going on. So when God came to bless Moses, his presence, you see, he only needs God's presence to bring judgment to sin. He cannot help being a judge of sin by just coming. And that's why as we're crying out for revival, we've got to make sure that when God comes, it's a blessing and not a disaster. Because that's been experienced already with with churches seeking the Toronto blessing and and the Pensacola blessing. They found that it's done as much damage as it's done good because the church isn't in a place to be able to to walk closely with God. So the only remedy here was to take Moses' tent and put it right outside the camp so that God could come and meet with Moses without coming into the camp and without, without... Bringing a presence of judgment because of the things that were going on in the camp. It just mentions a few people. The only one who's named is Joshua, who so wanted God that wherever that tent was, they were going to it, and they were going to get in it, and they were going to stay there. And we find Moses. We find Joshua lingering in the tent. Even after Moses, you also find, if you go back a little bit to to Exodus 24, let's go back there for a moment. The Lord speaks to Moses in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. So even the elders didn't qualify, but Joshua did. And he qualified because of the hunger of his heart. That's all God was looking for, was here was a young man that had a passion for God. He said, said, I'm going to let you come with Moses into the deep, intimate things that I'm dealing with with Moses, and you can be there to watch. And you can be there to spectate. And you notice that in Genesis, in Exodus 24, he's called Moses' assistant. In Exodus 33, he's called Moses' servant. So he's not got some big top job. He's just there to hang around, do whatever Moses wants, but the benefit he gets is being near to a man who's near to God. Now can you begin to see why the generational blessing passed to this man rather than to the natural children of Moses because they weren't even bothered and they didn't in any way qualify or fulfill the conditions of intimacy. As I said already, they weren't even bad enough to be judged. They just, they just were nothing. Let's move on page 12. He, he just longed to be with Moses, hang around, and experience with him all he could have got. Number three is another important mark. His willingness to serve, his, this was what made him qualify, his willingness to serve Moses in any way. He's called Moses' servant or Moses' assistant a number of times. He just said, look, I'll come, I mean, I'll cook your food, I'll carry your Bible, I'll clean your shoes, just let me be with you, just so that when you're with God, I get the the benefit and the backwash of your relationship with God. Now that's what God's looking for in true sons. So if you want to be a son that's going to inherit all that a spiritual father that you may know has got, then you just go to him on these terms and I tell you, you're going to get the blessing. Number four, his quick willingness to obey all that Moses ever told him to do. He he never showed any sign of wanting to take over from Moses or suggest he could do anything better, unlike the sons of Korah, because they thought they could do it better, unlike uh, Absalom with David. They thought they could do a better job than, than their respective spiritual leader. And the time had not yet come. And there's not a thing about... Joshua that's grasping or wanting anything. He just wants to be with the man who's with God because he wants to be with God. And so when Moses in in Exodus 17 tells him to go to war, and let's let's just look at that. And they go to war with Amalek. Amalek. Verse 8, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose out some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the mountain with the rod of God in my hand. So you're going to get your life taken. I'm just going to pray for you, brother. (laughs) I'm going to go on the top of the mountain with the rod of God. So Joshua said, why should I risk my life when all you're going to do is have a nice comfortable prayer meeting? That's not what he said. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let it down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And Lord said, now write this for a royal in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua because he's getting him in line now for the inheritance so he wants him to hear this thing. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven and so from now on, he said, you've, you've got to be those kind of people. Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And of course, Amalek in scripture is a tremendous type of the flesh, which I've not time to go into this afternoon. But we're just focusing on Joshua's behavior. Notice once again that this young man is a warrior. It comes every time. He's ready to go to war and fight. And in this particular case, Moses, Aaron, and Hur are going to go to the mountain and pray. And he's just absolutely obedient, and because of their mighty prayers and their authority in the spirit realm, when they start to pray, then Joshua sees the victory. When they stop praying, he's losing the battle. Number five. Only at the time of Moses' death, when God Himself spoke and makes it very clear, did He accept His new role as Moses' successor. He was there and ready to serve for life. It wasn't a stepping stone to a greater ministry for Him. Can you hear what I'm saying here? He's the servant. He's the assistant, and there was never any suggestion it might ever change. He said, I don't care if I stay here for like David once said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than live in the tent of sinners. I'd rather get the smallest, littlest job in the presence of God than have a big name and a big ministry, and I lose God's presence in the process. Amen? I'd rather be an intercessor in my church that never ever is known or heard of, never gets any recognition in this life, and that the pastor gets it all, and he gets all the credit for all the mighty things that are happening. That's fine with me, because I'm here for God, and my passion is to be with God, and my passion is to serve God, and to serve this man that God's anointed, and call for a particular ministry. Now that's the language of the true son. you get the Koathites and you get the Absaloms and you get the Adonijahs in the case of David. And these are false sons, which we have to be careful of. And that doesn't mean that our leader is flawless because, you know, the reason that the sons of Korah rose up against Moses was because they could pick certain little faults in the way that he lived and the way he behaved. But the question is, is the anointing of God upon? him and has he called him if he has you better not touch it amen all right let's move now to Numbers 27 Moses is coming to the end of his tremendous ministry Numbers 27, verses 18 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, so God's Spirit's already upon him, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. Commission, ordain him, wouldn't be a bad word. And you shall give him of, that sum is not in the in the Hebrew, it's put in by our translators, take it out, and give him of your authority to him. And you shall give of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim, and at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, and he and all the children of Israel with him All the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, set him before Eliezer, the priest, and before all the congregation. He laid his hands on him and he ordained him, is the word I'm going to use here, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Now, says the Lord to Moses, command the children of Israel, etc., etc., etc. Come to Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy is Moses' sort of closing book. He had a farewell meeting and this is what he said. Deuteronomy 34. And we're coming in at verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, There has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses who knew the Lord face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now let's pass to Joshua. Now Joshua is now prepared to accept his new role. After Moses' death, he's anointed and empowered. Come to Joshua chapter 1. God says to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all these people to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have already given it to you. And then he describes the land. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according all to the law, to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Don't turn to it from the right or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And then he goes, verse 10, have I not commanded you? Be strong and good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then, then Joshua for the people to sit and then he starts to take over. He gets them all in order and soon they're on the move. Now listen just to this little bit at the end. So he now stands before the people and this is how they respond. So, verse 16 of chapter 1, So they answered Joshua, saying, All that you commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. And listen to this one, Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Is that a joke? (laughs) I wonder what Joshua felt when he heard that one. (laughs) Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, in all that you command him, he shall be put to death, only be strong and of good courage. Now that's a proper transmission. Amen? And just some points to note. Joshua started where Moses left off. The moment Joshua took over, they immediately were now advancing to take the promised land. Up to the time of Moses, he could talk about it, he could point to it, and as we know, because of a tragic, just momentary flash of anger, he was prevented from entering it himself. The name Joshua, of course, I'm sure you all know this, it's just another form of the word Jesus. And God's bringing this incredible ministry to an end, and he's setting this young man in place with everything that Moses had from day one He's now going to go and possess the land. Now, he's not a a spring chicken. He's around about 80 to 85 years of age. Now, the reason he's so old, primarily, is because he was born and had to live with a whole generation of rebellion that wouldn't do the will of God. And that's a tremendous lesson to us. For one whole generation, Moses was ready to go, Caleb was ready to go, they could have taken that promised land 40 years earlier if it had been, if they'd been able to lead a people that were willing. Hello. So he had to mark time for a whole generation until God could give him another generation that were prepared to go in. And of course, it meant war. Every foot of ground, I've already given it to you but you've got to place your foot on it in other words, Moses, although it's yours by by divine decree you're still going to have to go and fight for it but I will work with you in such a way that there's not a person there's not a nation, there's not a king there's not a ruler, there's not a demonic power that can stand against you but son it will not fall out of heaven into your lap, you've got to go get it And so, so Joshua then begins the process of entering into the inheritance which God had sworn for three generations and then there was this great lapse of 400 years of slavery and now at last they're coming into their inheritance. Hundreds of years have gone by but now the moment it passed from Moses to Joshua it went from something in the future to a very pragmatic now, and I believe that's right where we are. In many great things that God's been saying through the prophets in this and many other nations. I mean, I look at India, and and I see it poised for something incredible hitting it. I see, I see, you know, Asian countries. What's happening in China? The 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 the, the, the underground church is is so phenomenally powerful and it's reaching uh, large, 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 large numbers. Nothing can stop the power of God. And, and Islam is is, I, I, how can I put it into words? What I see in my spirit Islam is a it, it's such a trivial thing to God. I no, that's not the right word. I can't find the right word. It is so It is not, oh my dear, what shall I do about Islam? But God's going to sweep it away. The the whole Islamic thing is going to be swept away with the royal majesty of an almighty God. For those precious people who have been captives of Islam, they're going to be gathered into the kingdom in, in absolute utter multitudes. And some of their great deceived leaders are going to be as powerful in the kingdom as the Apostle Paul was when he had made the change. We're living in, in exciting and absolutely momentous days. Amen? Now well, let's just move on because we're, we, we'll do a little catching up. I want to look at Elijah to Elisha now. Yes, I've just made a point here. Unfortunately, it seems, Joshua did not have what Moses had. There was no natural or spiritual son to succeed him. When he died, and the elders who knew him died, then the nation backslid quickly into the most appalling apostasy and the worst period of its life. And there you see the tragedy of an unsuccessful generational transmission. And the Bible doesn't give you a hint of why that happened. There's no, there's no assistant to Joshua, there's no one that ever seems to stand with him. I don't, we don't, we're not even told if Joshua was married. He doesn't, we're not, it's not mentioned that he had any natural children. And I've had my thoughts about that, but you know, um, and I'm not sure I want to talk about it publicly yet, but I, there's, there's reasons for all these things and God's got to show us the keys to all these things. But it may seem strange The, the the God's people, and of course, particularly the church, is, is a corporate thing, thanks. It's the thing of fellowship. And and it's and it, you know, this is where, for example, some great God-hungry people in the Catholic Church went into error in that they shut themselves up in monasteries and, and nunneries and, and tried to seek God for Himself. But you see, Joshua was an active pragmatist, but somehow he seemed to live in a bubble of total isolation. That's what it seems like to me, looking from the outside. And if I'm misreading this, because it's nothing very clear in Scripture, then Joshua will forgive me when I get to heaven and explain to me why there was no one close to him, no one to whom he could impart. But it seemed like it was that way. There were elders that knew him and knew his ways, but there, there was never a son. There was no evident, and if I were in any kind of ministry, well, I am in a ministry, and, and I'm sure many of you are, but, but my advice to you is to cry out to God to give you the sun so the thing can continue. And If you haven't got one, if you can't see one, even on the horizon, it's something of a very high priority to be looking for. Because if you give your life to build something, you want it to go on, to the next generation, and it will go on to the next generation through a son. Amen? So that's, the, that's the, the tragic note on which we have, have to end when it comes to the successful transmission to Joshua. It was so successful to him, but it didn't work for the next generation. Let's go on to the next one now. Elijah was expressly told by God to go and anoint Elisha, as prophet in his place this was in 1 Kings 19 he'd just been knocked out of the, the battle by a terrible demonic attack by the, one of the most vicious spirits that exist the spirit that was working through Jezebel the queen not time to go into all that there's not time but God was able to recover his servant to a measure of spiritual health but he couldn't put him back into battle as a great warrior Amen And so Elijah was obedient. He immediately moved on. He came to Elisha, which we read about in 1 Kings 19. Let's just go there for a few moments. I want to see what happens. Because this could be you or me in either the Elijah or the Elisha role. We've got to learn the lessons and avoid the pitfalls. 1 Kings 19. And we come in at verse 19. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 oxen, 12 yoke oxen before him, and he was with the 12 Now that tells me something, that Elijah found a man who was not on social security looking for something to do. Many people get into the ministry because they're no good at anything else expect to live off the church as parasites rather than powerful men and women of God. Amen? But he was already a successful farmer because if you know anything about plowing fields by oxen, which I do because I lived in India for years, the, the, the head man is at the back of the twelve because he's keeping an eye on the other guys to make sure that they behave properly. So the fact he was with the world tells me that he's the boss. It was his farm, it was his business, he'd got all these guys hired to work for him and he was evidently successful. And out of nowhere Elijah appears and throws his mantle on him and then just walks on. Now Elisha, we read, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, well look, it's a bit inconvenient because I'm just in the middle of ploughing this field, and I've got all these guys working for me. But if you'll just give me a little while to set my affairs in order, then, then I would love to come and follow you. I love your mantle, but I can't come right now because I'm just coming to the end of my you know my uh, doctorate, and I want to finish writing my thesis, and you know, and then I'd like to do a bit of lecturing. Get, get my, and then then later on, then I will be very happy to think about coming into full time ministry. Hello, can you hear what's being said here? It wasn't convenient. It was a most awkward moment in Elisha's pursuit of his successful career. He said, please let me kiss my father and my mother then I will follow you. What he's really saying here is, look, I've got to see my mum and dad through you know, to retirement and to dying, you know, to dying sort of, what's the word I want? Dying... Um, with dignity, and I'm there. I'm, my job is to look after them till they die. That's, you know, because I mean I have to, I have to bury them. I, I have to stay here till my father closes his eyes. That would be an Indian phrase that we use. I must stay in my, my dad's business until my father closes his eyes. Meaning I can't, I can't leave my dad in abandonment. I've got to see this thing through. And so Elisha just says, "What have I done to you?" There's the mantle to pick up the anointing of this prophet or you can carry on with your career and try and fit God in between the convenient moments in your career. And Elisha makes the decision that it's now or never, so he better go now. And that was deliberately done by God just to see where his heart was. People said similar things to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go bury my father. He said, Let the dead bury their dead. I mean, it doesn't sound very loving. He said, But you come and follow me. And there are those of us here in this conference, and there are those of us that we're thinking of that's just like the guy in my church. You know, he's got this great gift, he's got this great potential, but he's so taken up. His career. He says, "Look, I'm a very successful doctor, and I'm making a lot of money. By the time I'm 45, I can make enough money to retire, and then I can start to work for God." Well, God may not have that plan for you. You may have to do it now. And so Elijah makes the decision, and he makes a bonfire of his career. He takes the takes the, the wooden turns it into a bonfire, takes the oxygen. He's sacrificing his career for the purpose of God. Can you see the picture here? And he followed Elijah and I said, well, I've been looking for someone to take over my international ministry and you'll be traveling all over the world. Of course, we always send our people business class or first class. You'll be $150,000 a year and we've got a very nice office for you to work from. Is that what he said? No fear. He said, he just came and became Elisha's." Elijah's servant All he was known for was pouring water on Elijah's hands. That's, that was his after three years of giving up this great, fantastic career, he's earned the, the, the name of the guy that pours water on Elijah's hands. And if you live in an Eastern culture where people wash their hands before they eat, this is something that you do. So, so the servant pours the water on, the, on your hands so that you may eat. Thank you. That's fair enough,. That's enough. Thank you very much. What a career. But after they get going, although Elijah's got his Elijah ways and his quirks and funny little ways of doing things, through that, you see, you can easily become judgmental when you get close to a man of God. Or you can look past the little human things that he's got or she's got to get through to the gold that God's deposited in him or her. And say, well, I don't, you know, I'm not even going to be put up by those little mannerisms. I can see the deposit of God in that man, and I'm I'm after that. I can see the, and, and I can see God in that woman and I'm after that. And I'll put up with the little mannerisms. After all, David served Saul for I don't know how many years. And so you're not really suffering that much. But as the two walk together, then what God has put into Elijah begins to be revealed to Elisha and he begins to see all the incredible qualities of this man. And as we know, and we're going, we probably have to break in the middle of this because I've just had a warning that we're just about running out of time. And it is just about time. I think rather than rushing, I think we'll just stop there. I want to show you how this thing proceeds so we can learn the lessons because this is another great transfer. So the time, according to my watch, is now 2.45. I'll just hand over to Natalie, who will tell us what to do and when to reassemble.